My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. That's me. Okay. I, I stepped on your line a little bit. I'm sorry. Oh, shit. That. His name is Eric Vespi. He is my legal name. Yes. His given name. We have quite the episode lined up today. Uh, our, our guest is the famed poster artist. Uh, who has worked for Mondo, Guillermo del Toro. He's done gig posters for Nine Inch Nails, Foo Fighters, Dropkick Murphys, Bruce Springsteen, on and on and on and on. He is also the creator of the $1 Grilled Cheese Truck, which you may have heard tell of on uh, Twitter.com. He's also the designer of our logo. I should add that. And we very much appreciated that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Daniel Danger. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing doing great. I'm in, I'm in my cold basement. I'm good. Yes. Uh, how are you? Uh, how are you enjoying our pandemic? It's going good up there. <laughs> well, you're I'm out in the t- middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, we're 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 deep in the country. Um, so it's. I mean, like I'm an artist who's been working in alone in a room for 15 years. So this is honestly not a huge lifestyle change for me. But <laughs> right. you know, my my wife and daughter we're out in the country, so we have like we're in farmland so like we're we're pretty comfortable where we are i mean we're like we don't we haven't had daycare forever so we're like kind of freaking out on that stuff because we're just 24 7 toddler but uh you know it's it's been it's it hasn't been the worst time for us to be honest is the danger compound uh fortified in any way if there were an, uh, a zombie outbreak or a countrywide pillaging would you be prepared for it well, the because we live in the country, um, a lot of our neighbors have machine guns. Mm-hmm. So yes. we we don't have machine guns, but the people <laughs> around us have machine guns. So I think if there was a thing, there's at least a first line of defense. The zombies would uh, their numbers would get reduced before they got to us. Okay, uh, so you're counting on the neighbors. So counting on the neighbors with their machine guns. Fair enough. Well, do yeah, any of them have do any of them have uh, bazookas in their basement? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like uh, a couple of them do, I bet. A couple of them do. If there's one thing I know about people who collect guns is that they have guns they haven't told you about. <laughs> right, you're right. If you've yeah. got machine guns, it's not. It's it's really a hop, skip, and a jump to a rock, yeah, rocket when, propelled when, grenade. When my uncle died and people went into his basement, they found a lot of guns my uncle was not supposed to own. So <laughs> let's not rule out the fact that my neighbors have uh, a rocket launcher stashed away somewhere. If if like you know, if cops have rocket launchers, random rural weirdos might have a rocket launcher. Fair. And speaking of rural, 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 uh, rural jurors, uh, rural citizens with rocket launchers, um, you have brought us a very exciting title today. And what is that? Maximum Overdrive. The original. The one and only. Uh, it's the source of our theme song, Eric. Isn't that true? That's true. There's a whole lot of Maximum Overdrive that you've heard, even if you've somehow missed this movie. Because the the intro was like filled with that. It's the I, I ripped off what I can legally get away with from uh, from the score. 
that's the guitar riff you hear. And then um, the opening with uh, Stephen King trying to be intimidating and just sounding nerdy as hell. You know? <laughs> yes. I, my name is Stephen King. That That's uh, from the trailer for Maximum Overdrive, which is a movie that he... Of course, directed uh, as well as uh, as the wrote only movie adapted. directed, yes. right <laughs> for a reason. Um, One and done. That Stephen King <laughs> go out on top. Uh, but yeah, no. I, but that tra- <laughs> yeah. that that trailer was was all like he's all over it. It was like Hitchcock. So it's like you know half of the footage is him just standing in a smoky room talking about how this is. I'm big and famous, and now I've uh, made this this uh, this horror movie. Uh, and, and of course, when I was thinking of what our, uh, intro music should, should be, uh, I knew I needed to take some sort of soundbite from that. Only appropriate to have ACDC on the front of this motherfucker. Um, and we're, we're going to get to maximum overdrive in a minute, but, um, before we get there, Daniel, can you, can you walk us uh, through your Stephen King origin story? When did you start reading King, watching King movies? What have you? I mostly was kind of dove into the movies. Um, I I didn't get into horror movies until a little later in life. So I didn't just kind of honestly, like, I don't think I actually saw the shining until I was in college or something, but maximum overdrive was like a staple of my childhood. Um, because my, my family traveled a lot and we were on the road a lot and we would stay in, you know, hotel rooms and whatnot. And we didn't have cable at home. So watching cable, like in a hotel was like a, you know, a, a treat almost. And, because of the nature of why we were traveling, which is a whole other story, we were usually getting into a hotel room late at night. So we were on watching. Yeah, we weren't not on the run. Um, <laughs> so we were getting, we were watching TNT at, you know, 11, 11 o'clock midnight or whatever. And so uh, Joe Bob Briggs and um, we, we would watch that. And anytime we saw that maximum overdrive was on, my brothers and I would like freak the hell out because if you're like a eight, nine, 10 year old boy, maximum overdrive is like perfect because yeah. it's just so stupid. It like, it's just, there's the green goblin, which I knew, I knew what that was and things get blown up and Emilio Estevez there and he was in mighty ducks and that's all you needed. Um, yeah the pat uh, hangle kids love pat hangle <laughs> yeah the voice of lisa simpson as a 22 year old um that's, that's yes <laughs> yeah so like we that was just like it was like the perfect dumb movie for like a kid to get excited about and like it became this kind of like um a weird source of, source of joy where it was just sort of like i would you turn on a tv and maximum overdrive is on and you're like we're watching the rest of this <laughs> But the thing that I will say is that, um, which is really, really, I've, I've noticed has been a really common theme in my life, is that I only, because I never had cable, because we weren't a family that really went to the movies, most of my experience with movies is the TV cuts of things. So I've seen Maximum Overdrive a zillion times, but I only, I only ever saw the basic cable cut of them. So watching it on you know Amazon last night... I was seeing stuff I never saw before because I was only ever watching it on TV. So there was various, you know, various shots. For example, the steamroller scene that I had never seen before because that definitely was not on television. Right. So, so you hadn't revisited it for a long time before this. No, no. I um, the last time I watched it was 
I think it was honestly someone had taped it off TV with all of like the old TV ads and such. Oh, wow. Um, I had never owned a DVD of it. I had never owned. It, I think it was just one of those things where it's like my rea- my relationship with the movie was when it's on TV, I watch it. And if it's not, if it's not on TV, I'm not hunting it out. It's kind right. of like an old friend that I see once in a while. Right, right. Well, there was a period, you know, probably around the same time that Clue was on HBO all the time. You know, like that very specific period of the early 90s where you're right, like Maximum Overdrive was on all the fucking time. And where I grew up, it was on Channel 11, like all the time. And I didn't see I didn't see the unedited version until much later either. But yeah, I watched this movie once every, I don't know, seven or eight years just to see if my opinion changes of it. And it's it's stayed about the same. I find more about it to appreciate. But uh, we'll get there in a minute. Eric, do you want to do you want to talk about the the short story uh yeah i mean i don't have too much too much to say about it other than this is another night shift story for it was a hot king property every because that came out in 78 it was a short story collection that's when everybody was making everything stephen king if you look through the glossary of of that it's like children of the corn and and you know a a dozen things some of the stuff that made it into cat's eye you know came from that that story collection sometimes they came back is what was that turned into uh, that was a, like a TV miniseries or something. Yeah, right? yeah. But uh, I like Night Shift. Night Shift's good. Yeah, no. It, and and Night Shift is is comprised mostly of stuff that he wrote before he got famous and like sold to men's magazines. And this is uh, we talked a little bit about this already on the show, uh, Lawnmower Man, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this was not like the the short stories he wrote and sold to a horny magazine. It was, um, yeah, this was published first. Uh, the short story is called trucks, by the way. Um, and it's, um, it was first published in 1973 in Cavalier. You know, and I, you know, rereading it for this, it's, it's a, it's a real short, short story. It's, it's super quick. You can, you know, read it in a, an easy sitting, even if you're a slow reader like me. But what really kind of struck me about it was that, like I had forgotten that it starts in the middle of the action because the, the whole story is that somehow all the, you know, machines have, have gained sentience uh, in, in the short, it's actually more specifically automobiles. Oh, yes. Stuff. Only vehicles, which was it's only vehicles. Uh, and at the beginning they think it's just trucks and then they start seeing other cars and stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, it starts like in the middle of everything. Everything's already gotten down. Everybody's trapped in the, the truck stop diner. The trucks are already circling on the page is actually very vivid and I can understand why a men's magazine bought this because it, it it's, it's the horror elevated science fiction horror version of uh, like being trapped on a, on an Island that's surrounded by hungry sharks. Right. So you're in one spot, but you can't leave. And yeah, or uh, the birds uh, with trucks, <laughs> the birds with trucks um, or the mist with trucks. Yeah. He, he's got, he's got a, aliens quite a few with of those. trucks. We can do this all day is the point. <laughs> It's not uh, as goofy as the movie ended up being. It's it's told to be a little bit more apocalyptic and and doom and gloom, and it's kind of it definitely has a downer ending. And uh, yeah, that's the short. I was surprised that um, I didn't remember the short story having as much to do with the movie as it does. But a lot of the major beats from the movie are in the story. You know, yeah, the, I mean, most the of the movie's second act, right? Is, is yeah, there. but there, you can you can see how he expanded it, 
I mean, everything he expanded it with is, uh, well, not good, but, um, you can see the bones. I think he kind of ruined it because he had like, (laughs) there was, there were ideas in the, in the short that are like played much straighter and they just sort of work. Like the whole refueling thing is the back half of the short story. And that sets up the whole, like the statement he's trying to, to make with the short story. And in the movie, it's just like this weird goofy thing. And they kind of, they kind of walk away from it. Whereas in the short, it's like that, that act of like basically turning the humans into like slaves is that's how the the story ends. Like everything, you know, ramps down from there. And in the movie, it's like, he just kind of pulls a weird U-turn on it, you know, pun intended. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the theme, the theme of the short story is very obviously that we're, we are slaves to technology. Right. And, and, you know, at the time technology just meant, you know, in the early seventies, when he wrote it, technology were, you know, was automobiles. Trucks were new then. Trucks yeah, only got, they only started making trucks in like 1969, yeah. 70. Everyone knows this. Yeah. The, <laughs> uh, the thing that kind of like stuck out to me was, you know, King's whole thing was sort of the like, you know, fear of the unknown and don't explain things. And if you don't understand something, it's like, it's scarier. And despite the fact that by the time I had read the short story, I had already watched Maximum Overdrive a zillion times. I knew it was goofy. I had kind of dove into the, like the 1997 TV movie remake, which is even goofier. And I actually found that the, the, the short story was like, tonally was sitting as a scary like a a more serious narrative to me and i think it's because the short story actually sticks to that thing of like we're not really explaining what's happening you're just as confused as the characters in the story etc 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 versus you know the movie where he like over like literally over explains (laughs) things because you know the movie it starts with a page of, you know, a page of text that's like the rear and blah, blah, blah is eight days and five hours and 29 minutes, 23 seconds and blah, blah, blah. And there's a tail of a comment and it's skinning around and turning them below. And it's just like, at that point you're like, uh-huh. Okay. Got it. Right. So it's like but everything. It doesn't is, seem like a causative action. Like it doesn't no. you're like, okay, but what does, isn't this a movie about fucking cars coming to life? Like yeah. it doesn't really get made clear till the end. And then they introduce a fucking UFO to the equation. So you're like, wait, did, yeah, was the UFO the comet? Like what? No, the UFO was behind the comet. Yeah, was it? Maybe it's maybe it's like on a little leash or something. Yeah, it's just it's like the the short story functioning in this way that's just sort of like it's it's much more focused in that it's these are trucks, these are cars, they're vehicles, and you know everyone who's ever driven a car knows the feeling of intimidation of like tractor trailer trucks because they're so imposing and there's a reason everyone scoots around them and tries to get away from them we already exist in a universe where we're very familiar with our fear of trucks but the moment you you go beyond that and you start being like let's make a scary vending machine like it just goes out the it goes out the window (laughs) it just doesn't work anymore like you've taken that really real human experience and you know, which has kind of been turned into this kind of scary short story, and you just you make fun of it, and then it just the moment you kind of make fun of it, it stops stops working. I don't know if you know we're we're talking about this in terms of the short story is actually kind of effective in its own yeah. way, and then the movie is just goofy and you know isn't as successful at that or loses something in the translation, but. 
I don't think that King was actually trying to make a scary movie here. I think he was trying to make like a goofy sort of something with more of a creep show vibe to it. Yeah, he called you know? it a moron movie, right? <laughs> uh, he he's called it all a number of things. I don't believe it's supposed to be scary, right? Like, but but in a weird way, I think that's this is exactly what King views as like peak horror uh, on film. Uh, because like the two movies he's had the most creative control on were Creepshow and in this film, and they both have similar tones, like that kind of goofy, gory EC Comics tone. That like that seems right. to be what his inkling is. Every time he's had creative control uh, on a film. Uh, that's the direction he, he goes in. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't know. He was pretty heavily involved in the Shining miniseries, and it doesn't have that tone. I think the Shining is too loaded, though. It's like culture yeah, too maybe. culturally loaded. Um, I think there's like there's like a, a balance that could have been run there because like my favorite, generally my favorite kind of horror movies are I call like giggle horror movies, where it's sort of like it's scary to the point that you're sort of like giggling or it's absurd that you're sort of giggling versus like, you know, the movie is sort of a, it's like, it's more of a comedy really than anything. And there's a, there's a, a part in the short story that kind of stuck out to me. Um, Cause it wasn't in, it wasn't in the movie, but it's explaining the Greyhound bus plowing through cars. And I kind of wondered like that little section of the short story was really successful to me. Cause it's like that same sort of thing. It plays into this idea of like when you're on a bus and you're not in control and you're kind of speeding around and everyone's been on one of those sketchy, like New York city to buses had that scene been put in the movie and played straight in the way that it was in the short story. I feel like that probably would have set the tone very differently for the movie of like having, you know, that would have been a great set piece of like having a bus full of people streaming down the highway, plowing through cars. And like, that's the sort of third thing. Like you could have played it straight in that way and it would have probably worked really well. And instead it like starts with a bridge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like the least scary thing in the universe, a bridge. Yeah, slowly Versus, opening. Yeah. yeah, a bridge slowly opening, and then watermelons falling on people. Like, <laughs> yeah, a guy falling. like a guy dressed for tennis slipping yeah, and falling. The ACDC van and and Marla Maples is in that car, and watermelons fall on her. <laughs> like, is that who that is? Yeah, the old ex Miss Trump. Uh, she's in a car, and watermelons fall on her. Holy like, that's, shit! Like the just right off the bat, like the movie was like. It, it like undid itself. And I just like, I like said, the reading, reading the short story, I kind of stuck. I was kind of surprised at like, this is actually effective. Like it's the, it's literally the same plot points. It's the same story, but it's so much more focused that it's actually affecting. And like, I'm actually, this is kind of like a fucked up, cool little story. I don't think you could do a, like a legitimately scary version of this. I think you I could do, I, I think you could do a sequence that really works. You could maybe hold me for 20 minutes with this concept of like buying into it and thinking it's, it's kind of frightening, but at a certain point it introduces so much, like your mind starts to wander and you're like, okay, so if all the machines are being controlled, then what does that mean about this? And what does that, you you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable that you start kind of poking holes in the entire premise of it and then it stops being scary. So I don't think that, I don't think there's a feature version of this that works. I, I had that same thought when I was reading um, reading the short story because I was like, this is actually effective. 
And one of the things that stuck out to me was, all right, so Trucks came, Trucks was written or published in 1973. Let's assume it was written in 1972, 1973. This comes a year after Spielberg's duel, which is a man being chased by a big intimidating truck. All written right, by so, Richard Matheson, who was also publishing short stories through. Yeah. So, you know, elephant in the room there. But duel is uh you only really see the guy in the truck like twice right like he sticks his hand out or something like that so if you had done a version of maximum overdrive where the trucks are attacking people and running people over and you're operating under the first you know 40 minutes of the movie under the assumption that people are in the trucks you then get to spin it and reveal that no one's in the trucks so then you you buy yourself some time with it where you you are operating on the assumption that there's some weird crazy trucker gang you know uh, murdering people with their big scary trucks and then forty minutes into the movie you get to reveal that no one's in the trucks big plot twist and then you just do maximum overdrive as it was which is to say this the um the short story the the short story taking place in. Uh, the truck stop and go and just that's and take that entire movie and shrink it down to 45 minutes versus 90 minutes you know Hmm. i like that take on it give me give me 30 million (laughs) dollars well but i'd say like i think the most effective stuff in the movie is uh when you're following that the the kid character at the beginning when it's you know his, his entire little league team gets wiped out the coach gets brained by the by the soda vending machine and the steamroller roll rolls over his his teammates and and then like that steamroller is so fucking good what is a steamroller even doing near a little league field like (laughs) it's so it it comes crashing through the sign (laughs) like it makes it it makes a dramatic (laughs) entrance yeah you know it's very looney tunes it's like i mean i'll defend this movie to my dying day the the, (laughs) the the opening the one of the very first things you see is is the front of a bank that tells tells you fuck you, yeah. right? And it's like if you don't know what movie you're getting into in the first thirty seconds after that, then that's on you, right? <laughs> yes. uh, you know, Stephen and, King and of course, at the ATM. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where he he calls his wife sugar buns or whatever. Yeah, and I had I had it in my notes that the uh, speaking of the bank sign that it's funny that the machines are immediately aggressive. You know, like before anyone's been killed, they're saying, fuck you and calling Stephen King an asshole. You know, I, I love that. They're just like immediate. That's the immediate response. You know, there's can you blame them? Look, look what we're doing to those poor robots, pushing them over with broom handles and shit. Well, now those robots are coming. It was funny because in the short story, um, when they do the Morse code thing, the trucks are speaking in like uh, a broken words like that's like you fill trucks now blah 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 like it's not nuanced you, yeah you're not using slang versus like when the uh this you know the atm is like you are an asshole you are an asshole like i'm like okay so the aliens know sl- american slang like and anatomy apparently <laughs> there's not a there's not a lot of like if you're gonna like uh if you're gonna over explain things in like a sci-fi or horror movie, like you have to establish some rules about how it's functioning. Cause the fact that like there, there were no firm rules and how anything operated in the movie kind of doesn't do it any favors, but in the short story, it's a little more like clean. It's cleaner, I guess. Like how would it impact your feelings about the movie? If it didn't have the opening and closing 
text on screen. Oh, I mean, I make fun of that closing text screen like five times a year. Like, cause that is a thing that is, that is a thing that has stuck out to me for years and years and years as like, it is the laziest thing ever. Um, because the short story ends in a way that I think is effective. Like it ends with imagery that like you could cut to and it's like, Oh yeah. What an ending. Like, yeah. Film any film, the, like the tearing down of forests and the, the factories by like with you know, blue collar people chained making trucks and all that, like end with that imagery. And you've got a cool ending in the movie. They're like, they get on a boat and yeah, then there's it's a, a zombie. It's a zombie like, ending, right? We're going to go to the uh, yeah. magic Island where there's going to be no zombies and, and you know, no cars. And yeah, literally uh, it has the, like um, what's the, uh, the Simpsons dog, the dog character. The Santa's little helper. No, no, no. The, um, when itchy and Poochie. scratchy introduced Poochie. Yeah. Remember when there's this scene where it's like Poochie went back to his home planet. Like that in a sense is like <laughs> yeah. almost like unintentionally making, or maybe it's a direct reference. I don't know. Unintentionally making fun of that scene in Maxim Overdrive when it's like, it was a, it was a, a UFO behind a thing. Uh, and okay. Bye. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause like, no, there's at no point in that movie anywhere. Do they ever, make any references or hint at it's a ufo or like the ufo reveal serves no function whatsoever no. like well it gives sentience to the to the comet i guess it gives yeah. like purpose to the thing although if i'm an alien this is the worst fucking plan i've ever come up with like yeah okay we're gonna <laughs> park know. in orbit and then what we're gonna do is take over all their machines and pave their land masses and then what We'll have a big parking lot. Like, like if they, what are the aliens trying to accomplish? If, if that's, yeah. you, you know, if we're going by the same standards of the short story and some of the stuff described there, like, what's the end game? To just have a bunch of trucks and a fucking yeah. world sized field of concrete? It doesn't make any sense. The short story, that's, it, it's effective because they've just sort of established that the trucks are the entity. But when you bring in, aliens in a ufo and a comet speaking through the trucks it that it doesn't work anymore <laughs> right raises a number of questions it doesn't make sense yeah i've always hated slash loved that final text screen because it, it doesn't help anything um <laughs> i think like, the movie might be stronger for it if you removed it but i also think having it on there is part of the charm so i wouldn't want to lose it yeah. Well, but but I mean, yeah. I mean, the the whole point of the reveal of the UFO is the 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 gag that they he makes about the Russian weather satellite having being armed with, you know, with nuclear warheads and and space lasers and stuff, right, to destroy it. It's right. like that, you know, I mean, that underlines the tone and silliness of the entire thing. So like I've I've never had a problem with it just because that's the movie that's established. The the movie that that you guys are talking about. Uh, is maybe a better adaptation of the short, but it's not what obviously what they set out to make. Right. I um, agree and, with you on that. Yeah. And, and, and to me, you know, that's why I have a problem with people saying this is a bad movie. Listen, of course there it's an over the top movie. Of course it's, you know, the lady screaming, you know, we, we made you is like doing her like crazy. It's like pre Nicholas cage, crazy, crazy performance. I love that. That happens and, twice. Yeah. <laughs> She, she's real uh, caught up on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, that's the, that's, that's the tone of the movie. Like I judge a, a bad movie is to me is a movie that fails at what it's trying to do. And 
I think Maximum Overdrive from the very first scene to the very last scene is telling you this is all just goofy fun. Enjoy yourself. Okay. I'm with you up to a point. I think for the first half hour or so, it's definitely delivering on that. And I'll go to the, I'll go to bat for that half hour all day. But then once the action starts centering, centering around like the, the plot lines between like uh, Yardley Smith and her husband or Emilia Estevez and, and uh, Laura Herring, like, I don't give a fuck about any of that. And also the the pacing of it is so bad that it becomes a legitimately bad movie. And it stays that way for basically through the end with like brief moments of relief where like kind of a cool thing happens. But what is the set? What is the final set piece of the movie? It's it's them staring down the truck and shooting it with a rocket launcher again something we've yeah, already, you've seen already seen that. 30 times because apparently they had a hundred rounds of rockets underneath <laughs> that truck spot by the time you yeah by the time the final showdown happens we've already seen trucks blow up from rocket launchers five times five or six times yeah i mean I, i'd say the 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 big finale is the is the the escape you know it's them him blowing up the the machine gun truck or the machine gun cart or whatever that thing is, yeah. you know, and, and that like escape and people, you know, dying and not making it. The rest is, is, is again, it's the zombie movie formula. It's like, there's, there's the escape from the mall, you know, and then there's the code of getting to the helicopter or getting to the boat, you know, and, and that's kind of that, that moment. And you have the one last scare with the face of, of all the trucks, the, the green goblin, one. Yeah, but so that's I, that's like a missed opportunity there because you see it coming up the highway as they're making that line down, you know, they're they're working their way to the marina or whatever the fuck, right? And so, you know, it it cuts from them going through the grass to the highway where the green goblin is like roaring up the highway and you're like, "Oh shit, he's going to catch up to them." And then they sort of take a moment and they like huddle down with their guns. It's half a mile from here or whatever the fuck Emilio Estevez says. And then they make it. What it really needed was like a shot of the fucking truck, like coming right up to the end of the dock or something, you know, as they made their getaway. And that that's just not in there. The Green Goblin truck, like barreling off the dock, trying to ram the boat or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, that would have yeah. been. I mean, like give it the tremors, the tremors yeah. ending. Yeah, yeah, do it like the jaw, like do a kind of a Jaws thing. Instead, it's just like the truck is just parked there and they shoot a rocket right. at it again. <laughs> yeah. It's just well, they were probably running out of money by that time, so like yeah, <laughs> or cocaine. I, one of those things I kept thinking about was like you know in um, Voltron or Power Rangers or anything like that, where it was like they go through the various steps of like trans, like we'll fight them with our tiger robots, or we'll and then we'll do blah blah blah, and then we'll do this, and it doesn't work, and it doesn't work, and then oh, finally, let's call it a big giant sword, and then the big giant sword comes down, and then they attack, you know, whatever, and they win every single time it seemed like what was happening here was that they were just sort of like, well, obviously trucks can die by rocket launcher. So let's go to that immediately. And like, it just sort of set the bar of like, they knew how to defeat the trucks from 20 minutes into the movie. And it like, it never was able to recover from that. Cause it was like, it was hard to feel like they were in any real danger because they had a, um, apparently a basement full of rocket launchers yeah. that well, were yeah. well established to destroy trucks. Perhaps we needed, needed a scene somewhere in there to communicate that they had a limited number of rockets. That did not happen. Yeah. Yeah. It did not happen. You know? Yeah. You, you definitely have a point there. And, and as somebody who's, who's, uh, uh, again, an unabashed defender of this movie, even as a kid, I was like sitting there when the machine gun thing comes out going, well, you got like 
grenades and a rocket launcher why don't you just take that thing out you know you've already established yeah. that the big it's the a big pretty rinky dink little thing too it's like yeah a, like a mine cart with a fucking yeah you know a machine it's gun same, it. the same sort of thing is that like in in daniel danger's telling of this story what's going to happen is that the manager uh is ki- has kept all these weapons secret um and then he gets killed at some point and they like get his keys or whatever and then they discover the uh the armory underneath the truck stop an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. So at that point they've been trying to like, you know, fight them with whatever means they have kicking around. And then you, an hour and 20 minutes in the movie, you have, you have like, all right, fuck it. We can do this. Right. And then you kind of battle from there instead. I mean, I was, I wrote down on one of my notes that was just sort of like rocket launchers question mark. And it was like one of my first notes because they introduced the rocket launchers like, Almost immediately, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and it, and it's, there's no thing that leads up to it. They like literally a guy comes from the back room holding a rocket launcher. <laughs> so you're pitching basically like the the big third act finale. Like I'm picturing a Michael Bay spectacular where they exit the fucking gas station. Now they're now all armed to the teeth, up to and including the kid, and they're just. <laughs> laying waste to these fucking trucks as they're coming up yeah. you know that would be rad and then they get to the marina yeah totally here, here, here's i'm gonna go i'm gonna cycle through the pitch again we're gonna take a bunch of the opening segments of the short story and combine with the opening segments of maximum overdrive and we're gonna have a bunch of like uh final destination opening sequences right off the bat like the first 20 minutes are like those kind of crazy things happening, everyone, uh, the various characters coming from their various directions and meeting at this truck stop. Okay, so, right on. And then, but up to that point, everyone's thinking that what's happening with the trucks are like roving gangs of like evil truckers or whatever. They don't know it's, it's no one's in the cab. So you got 45, 40 something minutes into the movie, you make the reveal that no one's in the trucks. Now, so no the, bridge action, no, no vending machine, none of that. Pure truck. Uh, I would. I would keep. I would keep the steamroller. I would keep. Uh, I'd probably lose the bridge. Um, but you know, I would keep the Greyhound bus from the short story. I would. You know, blah 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 blah. So then they get. To, they get to the. Uh, they get to the truck stop. They're. They're fighting and scrapping with what they have kicking around. You know, the trucks are circling all that stuff. Whatever happens to the manager, the manager dies. They get down to the armory. Suddenly, they're loaded. So they're fighting back with the trucks. The trucks are doing the gas thing. And then, you, I don't know, they run out of ammo, something like that. Like, do you parallel, like, the trucks running out of gas versus them running out of ammunition? I don't know. There's a movie in here somewhere, I swear. I think you could have it where when they come out of the gas station and, you know, let's, for the sake of discussion and because the sky's the limit, let's say – there's six survivors at that point, and all of them have rocket launchers. Yeah. Okay. And each one of these rockets has, they've got like three. So they've got about 20 rockets to work with. And so they just, they come out firing, boom, boom, boom. And they're like, they take out not only the trucks that are circling the parking lot, but any that are coming up the road at them. So what they create is this giant pileup of twisted metal, you know, like like all the carcasses of the the trucks are out there that creates a stoppage on the highway where they can get away. I think that would look pretty cool. But we're going to need Michael Bay to shoot this thing. I know? think you could do something where you you have the, you know, the the goblin truck as like the primary like uh 
you know, bad guy in the movie. So you give them the weapons, you let them kind of like fight the trucks and take out a bunch of trucks and have these big, cool, heroic set piece where they're just fucking laying waste to, you know, a highway of these things. But eventually they run out of ammo. Then you can introduce the aspect of like, you know, what's what works from the end of the short story where the trucks are like, you will refuel us, you will be our slaves, you will repair us, blah, 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 blah. And then end the movie in the same way that the short story ends, not the the movie, because the movie ending is stupid. And the short story ending is like kind of, you know, nihilistic and great. And I, I okay, mean, I, but like, I, got a, I got a note here. I think you combine the movie ending. I think they do get to the marina. I think they, they create a roadblock for themselves. I think they have another encounter with the goblin right before they get to the marina and somehow take it out, perhaps uh, with the power of friendship or love. And then they get onto the boat. Yeah, or jet skis. And then they get onto the boat. Then they start going to the island, and then you see the airplanes. So they realize they're like, they're still kind of fucked, you know, even if they get there. I feel like we have to get a meeting with someone. (laughs) Yeah, this will work. Yeah, we pitch our 2020 Maximum Overdrive film. Let's get let's get Flanagan back on the phone. He can Agreed. do anything. Do you guys want to hear uh, uh, a rumor that I, I heard about this film that might be super apocryphal, but it, it could also very well be true? Hit me. Yes, please. The backstory of this is I love this film so much. I own a 35 millimeter print of it nice. and, oh, shit. and I uh, screened it at uh, one of the Alamos many, many years ago. And uh, this is a private screening with friends. And a friend came up to me afterwards who kind of works in and around the, the film industry. And he said, you want to know something crazy? All the stuff with the kid that was shot, the stuff at the very beginning where he's going through the neighborhood and the, you know, how, how that has a, a different feel from the rest of the movie, you know, where it, it seems a lot more deliberate. Like it's really kind of creepy him going through this abandoned neighborhood and seeing the sprinklers turning on and, and sure. turn behind him and turning off when he turns around to look at him. All that is a different feel. He told me, and this could be complete bullshit. I don't know, but I'm going to spread it here anyway. He told me that Dino De Laurentiis saw how badly King was flailing here. And he brought in a director that he had just worked with on a movie called Dune. And that was David Lynch to come in and no. shoot some of that stuff. You know, That's weird, fucking though. crazy. No, because you yeah. were you were telling that that telling that whole setup, and I was like, "Oh, I know this rumor," and it was like, "But you ended it differently than what I had heard, which was Ooh, that." What did you hear? I had heard that Romero was on set. I was going to guess Romero friend, was just was he was on set as a friend of Stephen King, and then was like Stephen King. I'd heard that Stephen King was asking him for advice on scenes and shots, and then just by nature of him being there, Romero was just sort of like. Oh, I'll, I'll join in. I'll talk. Like, and he was like helping direct that stuff. But I hadn't heard the Lynch thing. But like, what? oh my god, like, this again, is blowing my mind because you know what? But- Blue Velvet was in production when this movie was in production, yeah. right? And in the same yeah. state, right? I don't know. Isn't that? I, I, I think that's actually addressed in Maximum King. Yeah, um, that, it comes up. Like, oh man. And what? And for people listening, what what is Maximum King? I, all right, oh. so. Oh. Ma- uh, Maximum King is was it a blacklist script? Yes. Okay, so Maximum King is a blacklist script that's like a comedy about the the story of Stephen King writing and directing Maximum Overdrive, but it's told really over the top, and he's like 
he's just like high out of his mind the whole time and having hallucinations where the characters from his other stories and movies are like in the room with him talking and it's so good and it needs to get made but it never will because no one would ever agree to this it's it's a fascinating thing it's It's, one it's it's to this day the best uh spec script i have ever read i've read it a few times now i reread it just before we recorded today the guy that wrote it shay hatton was uh shane black's assistant for many years he's now working on a um a john wick spinoff called uh the ballerina but this was sort of his calling card he wrote this this script ended up on the blacklist and it sort of propelled him up so good but there's no way you could make this movie you know emilio estevez is a character king is a character fucking demi moore is a character in this movie it it says it says in the script a few times like at at one point it says the jack nicholson version of the character or someone who looks like him so i think he's like even in the script he said like it's sort of implied that like you could get away with sort of like fudging this but i um i found the section that we were talking about where um, Stephen King is talking to Dino and he says, and Dino says, another production of mine is shooting here. This is why we shoot you. You shoot your movie in North Carolina. I tell you this 200 times. Um, Stephen King says, what's the other movie? Dino says, it's called Blue Velvet. Hmm. Uh, Stephen King says, interesting title, not to my taste, but it's undeniably evocative. (laughs) (laughs) It's, um, if you can get your hands on it. That that backs up the rumor. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You know, the because that's got to come from somewhere, right? You're not going to just casually, you know, yeah, that, I, I can I can tell you the guy that told me like was not uh, was like, oh, I heard this from a friend of a friend of a friend. It was just like uh, I heard this directly from from somebody who would know and uh, it, whether or not it's public knowledge, whether or not it's exaggerated in any form. I have no idea. But ever since he told me that, you know, I every time I watch the movie, I kind of pay attention to that sequence and it really is unlike anything else in the in the movie just in yeah, terms it definitely of definitely has a completely different feel and it's even shot differently too right uh, it, it has a bunch of like great attention to details kind of like um they do it like how edgar wright would later do like the the walk in Shaun of the dead the walk to the yeah. grocery store and back with you know there being stuff in the background that the character is not seeing uh, you know, great attention to detail, like, you know, the fucking uh, ice cream truck. Oh, I, love ice cream I, truck. I, I love that ice cream truck because it's something that's so innocent and cute. And you can tell it's just hit dozens of kids. It's got like a tricycle stuck in its grill and there's blood on the fender. Oh, and- what is the, um, there's an, like a note that I had made in here. Um, but in that scene, there was like, there's all these little kind of vignettes that he sets up and it's like they, he walks past that window and there's the woman like hanging out of the window and she's like strangled by a hairdryer, which I don't yeah, quite it, get how that telling, works. Every, every scene is telling a story like the dog with the, with the RC car stuck in its mouth. Yeah, man, I'm never going to stop thinking. Fuck this. Fuck this show. We need to start a new podcast. It's basically like serial only getting down, getting to the bottom of the fact that David Lynch direct part of, maximum overdrive i'm never gonna stop thinking about we it. just need to figure out we, if he was just ever on set because it does the difference between directing and like was he just sort of there and like took over the way that like you hear that all the time of like you know people visit sets and they just sort of end up sitting down and like making calls yeah but this is like a whole sequence you know yeah. this was it's it's noticeably different um I, I i had this it stuck out to me too when i was watching last night of like you know, anytime there's a drastic, like, change in voice, if you will, like, right. you go, oh, it's like a little bit 
the, the movie, the rest of the movie is so goofy and over the top. And like, like I, I described it as like, a, um, a violent shaggy dog movie where like, you know, like those Disney, like those like comical, like, you know, seventies Disney, like, you know, mayhem movies, like Herbie the Lug Bug and stuff with right. it just about mayhem and chaos and, and goofiness. But this is like, you know, one where like kids get run over by a steamroller. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can buy the like little league scene being King. Like that has all, it's yeah. so Looney Tunes. And even at the point where he goes to try to rescue the, the coach and he throws on the, the, the catcher's mask or whatever, right. To block the, the, uh, uh, the, the cans. Um, and uh, like all that feels like in tone with the rest of the movie, but, but just that little scene through the neighborhood, like you said, it's the, that's the one that feels the most like, holy shit, somebody understands how to visually, you know, express something that's not there. Yeah. Like well, all the rest it. of the movie is pretty much what you see is what you get, you know, but, but that one is like, you're right. It's evocative of all these stories. And it, to me, that's, that sequence is by far my favorite in the, in the movie. And it is, it is that it's like almost it's the same thing that Spielberg would later do with War of the Worlds, where he's not he, you're seeing glimpses of all this crazy shit going on through a single person's point of view on the ground, right? You're not right. getting these these you know kind of God's eye, you know, cinematic things. You're getting a very personal you know a, a glimpse into little pieces of all these other different stories going on around him. Yeah, but I I, lo- I love that sequence and and. Uh, uh, maybe somebody will listen to this and they can can help uh, confirm or deny that uh, David Lynch rumor that I heard. Look, the, people the, have been people have been aggregating news off this show lately. Um, <laughs> yep. I am telling you directly: if you listen to this and you have a platform, please write this up. Please put it out into the ether. I need an answer about this, or my fucking brain will melt out of my ears. I was, and make sure it, to it, make sure to say that we're not saying for sure it is that this is just some bullshit I've heard that could be true. We're saying we need to launch an investigation. We need if our I, best men on this. If I say it's true, that means someone has to report it as news. That right? is true. That okay. is true. Yeah. So David Lynch directed an entire <laughs> sequence of Maximum Overdrive secretly because Stephen King uh, was uh, didn't show up to set. There you go, folks. That is King the, the factual thing that definitely happened and should be written up on various news sites who are too lazy to do any of their own reporting. We're not going to name them specifically. You know who you are. Come and get it. Here are your hits. Uh, and what's really fucking crazy is when when I was watching this this afternoon, um, the specifically the thing with uh, the kid on the street and the um, – what the fuck? I, I suddenly lost my words. The – the things that spray water on a lawn, sprinklers, uh, the sprinklers, the sprinklers, you know, as they're like going in tandem behind him or whatever. And then he pulls up like right in front of the camera and all of his movements are, are cut to the beats of the song, the ACDC song that's playing. And I remember, like, I thought to myself, like that was actually really well done. Like that, you know, say what you will about this movie, but that, that little moment was fucking great. So, so now <laughs> Now that we're hearing this, my 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 brain is just on fire with. There's a mo- there's a level of like competency in that sequence that feels foreign compared to the rest of the movie, where like there's like no rhyme or reason to anything that's happening. I'm just saying that the kid going through the neighborhood sequence would stay in my uh, 2021 version of Maximum <laughs> Overdrive, and with uh, Maximum with Max- Trucks, with Maximum, maximum King, Trucks, King. You know, you have to assume it was written 
like never to actually be made. You know, it's know. does I, anyone spend that much time to do that? I think or, so. I, mean, I think if you and I think if you're like trying to um, get you noticed, know, yeah, if you're trying to get noticed, and here's man. I, the first time I heard about it, like just the log line of it, it was like, well, I absolutely have to read that. I think yeah, anyone they, with any, like any passing familiarity with King would, would drop what they're doing to read some insane spec script where like a wild, like a wildly coked up Stephen King is the main character through the whole thing. I tried to get in touch also- with, with uh, Hatton back when I originally read the script and uh, somebody that follows me on Twitter uh, claimed to know him. Uh, so we talked like very briefly in email or DM or something because I wanted to interview him about it and, and talk to him about, you know, the whole thing. It's so it's so fucking good for one thing. Yeah. And for another, it's just like such an audacious piece of writing that you're like, I want like I want to talk to this guy. I want to know what his deal is. Um, it's just and, as good to read, too. Like it's it, it's an yeah. enjo- the script is an enjoyable read. It's yeah, the script like, itself is funny, like not just yeah, the dialogue. Like, there's a lot of scripts that are just sort of like comedy movies that don't work because you need the pacing and stuff for them. Like this is a really fun script to read. Totally. And after I reached out, uh, the, the word that came back was that he didn't want to, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to draw any further attention to it. I think, I think that it like, you know, this would have been in the week within it making the blacklist. It was 2016. I yeah. Looked it up. Yeah. About that long ago. And the, and the, you know, it wasn't stated explicitly, but the impression that I got was maybe that it had gotten a little bit more attention than he realized. And he didn't want to throw any more fuel on the fire at the risk of maybe getting sued, you know? So, um, if Shay Hatton is listening to this by some miracle, I would still like to talk to you. We'd love to have you on the show and, and talk about this, but, uh, what a piece of work. It's kind of that like hearts of darkness versus apocalypse now thing where it's sort of like. The joke is that like the documentary is better than the movie. And this is a thing where it's like the, uh, what do you call it? Like the, what do you call a movie like this? Biopic or making of? No, but it's like a making of. It's like a, it's like a surrealist making of comedy. I don't know. It's a dark comedy. It's got those surrealist touches to it because like, you know, King characters are his sort of imaginary friends in the, in the movie itself. You know, Annie Wilkes is a character, Jack Torrance. Um, the Man in Black is the Man in Black. Well, yeah, yeah. Randall Flagg is, he's the first one to appear, like, you know, three or four pages into the script. Clearly written by somebody who knows their king shit up and down. And I think it's relatively easy to find online. I think you can sort of poke around and, and probably track down a copy of that. Yeah, but. you don't need to be in a super secret I have a, a, group a few, or something. I have a few side side notes of sorts of things that yes, like I think are worth worth hammering out uh, lightning round style. <laughs> I love I love the idea of ACDC getting approached to yes. not only like write the music for this movie, but write a score for this movie. <laughs> right. And the image that just popped into my brain, because whenever you think of like movie scoring, you think of some guy like doing slow string sounds and orchestral builds and all that. And you think of like any time in history where like uh, a, a rock musician has been tagged to score a film. Let's go like Johnny Greenwood. They tend to go towards the 
appropriate mediums for film scoring of like orchestras and strings and all that stuff. <laughs> and I just like the idea of like ACDC being like, all right, what and like, you know, the, the, the music supervisor for the film being like, all right, what do you got? And they're like, all right, we got this riff. Like, what do you think and they're like uh well it's not really a movie score it's just a janky guitar riff what else you got well i got this other one it's like i kept envisioning this sequence of them like not understanding what a movie score was and just just dumping out boring acdc riffs it's wild Didn't- to think that king was so powerful at this time that he could call in one of what was then the big one of the biggest rock bands in the world and just be like, I'm going to need you to write a score about this movie I'm making or for this movie I'm making. It's about, a well, it's about machines killing people, um, mostly trucks. And it's set in a truck stop. And they're like, yes, sir, we can do that. That's a well, fucking was, wild thing. There was kind of a precedent for that, right? There was um, Queen did did uh, Flash Gordon. And they true. did it in very much the no, same. It's, did they do Flash Gordon or um, uh, Highlander? They did both, but uh, oh, okay. Flash Gordon was, was yeah, first. Flash Gordon yeah. got a big one. Oh, yeah. right. No, in my world, uh, Princes of the Universe is the big one. Thank you very much. <laughs> Princes of Queen's Princes of the Universe is fucking incredible. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. Which oddly would be more fitting in Flash Gordon, actually, than, yeah, for real. <laughs> than it would be in Highlander. I love the video. I've wanted to make a I've wanted to draw the music video for that stupid song. Oh, it's the best. I have one one here in one of my favorite little bits of trivia about this for people. Uh, a very young Giancarlo Esposito is in yeah. it. Yes. Who's uh, Gus Fring, famous for being Gus Fring in uh, Breaking Bad. And he is the dude that says yo mama to the <laughs> to His the only line as machine. far as I can tell. He's got a he's got a, he's got a great little sequence in there. Um, yeah, in the little truck stop arcade that we only see that one time. Really, he steals yeah. uh, in the short story. They like they like break open a vending machine, steal cigarettes, which it was just weird that like they gave they took that part from the short story and gave it to him in the movie as this completely separate character. Uh, <laughs> yep. that the first black no character other- introduced <laughs> in the movie, by the way, introduced yeah. looting a place. Um, uh, well, yeah. isn't, isn't, uh, don't we see, uh, uh Frankie Faison, who is the actual driver of the I don't Green think Goblin? He's introduced before that scene. I would have to go back and rewatch, but as I was watching it today, I was like, eh, that's, a, that's a little bit of that, uh, tone deaf racist shit. Um, that, that yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure, that's there no matter what. But, uh, but Frankie Faison also, he's in the Langoliers, he's one of the oh, guys on the plane, Langoliers. Yeah, yeah, so he's he's got some Stephen King cred. Um, another interesting thing about this one is uh, that it blinded um, the cinematographer. There was an accident on the set of this thing. They were filming a thing with a well, with a lawnmower coming down a driveway or a ramp or something, and King wanted it to look more threatening. And they they removed some of the whatever sort of safety protocols they had in place. And the the metal blades of this thing struck the platform that the camera was sitting on and a, a chunk of the wood went into the cinematographer's eye. And he ended up losing the eye, suing for $18 million and then settling out of court. And he only made two other movies the rest of his life, uh, neither of which you've ever heard of. What a thing to have on your conscience if, uh, yeah. if you made this movie. I was going to say we should uh, that should also feed into the whole David Lynch thing because if we are correct that would be part of the David Lynch sequence not not the Stephen King sequence right the lawnmower chases the kid in the neighborhood 
Ooh. It depends if if King was managing that particular gag or not. Hmm. You know, the whole it, just because maybe that's why it's, it's a King, conspiracy to cover it up. They don't want David Lynch doesn't want his reputation. I don't think ruined. I don't think uh, King would have just taken the bullet on that. You know, <laughs> I think he probably would have voiced something. But just because it's a gag within the sequence doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, that's true. You know, we don't know that Lynch shot every part of it. I can totally believe the thing with the sprinklers, though. You know, I'm on board with this conspiracy theory. My, uh, what else? My other, what else have we my got? My other thunder round is um, a little moment in the Emilio Estevez love scene that was very strange, and I don't know if either of you caught it, but after uh, after they have sex, Emilio Estevez, while talking to her casually, is rubbing sweat off her head and licking it off his fingers. <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> this is referred mm-hmm. to in maximum king too yeah he's just like he's just licking he's not like licking her face he's like wiping it off with his hand and then like like licking it off his fingers it's so fucking weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah man the yeah. 80s a lot of cocaine a lot well, of cocaine that's that that's the crew we talked about them making this making the movie and intending to make the movie they're making. I, I will say that that is true for most of the filmmaking team, the producerial team, most of the actors, especially the lady who plays the waitress who has her, her big, uh, you know, uh, uh, we made you speech, but I don't think Emilio Estevez was on that page. He is trying, he, th- he plays this thing so damn serious and it's, it's not, he, it doesn't feel like he's ever in on the joke. Every, every single thing that he's, does is uh it, it doesn't have the same tongue-in-cheek feel as, as the rest of the right. rest of the movie well he's still you know, he's it, trying to be the hero you know yeah i'm sure he was told he was going to be the hero in the movie and so that's why he signed up and like it doesn't really pan out that way well you know it's hard to compete with that green goblin truck that's another thing like no matter how you feel about this movie what a fucking great visual that is oh i love it yeah you know love i'd love it. to i'd love to talk to king about were there other, were there other, you know, what do you even fucking call that? A facade on a truck? Like, you know, were there other ones they went through and they ultimately landed on that one? Because that's an enduring image. You know, you can show someone a picture from, uh, of just the truck with that face on it. And they're like, oh yeah, it's from that horror movie. You know? It's, yeah. It's yeah. Someone thing. like the process of building that thing in the early eighties was not an easy thing either. Like someone had to like, yeah. Money and time was spent on that gag. And I think that's just sort of like a thing of like really indicating to the audience that like this truck is the bad guy. He's got, you know, right. he's got the there's the the goblin face, there's the juxtaposition of it being a toy truck that's like dark and scary. It's like there's a focus on it very intentfully. It's and like Stripe from Gremlins. You've yeah, got to demarcate the, one of them so it's like the leader. Cuz it's like yeah. If if that truck had been, I don't know, for for example, the Big Pen truck prominently featured in the movie, <laughs> which is the least scary truck imaginable, like it doesn't work. It's funny you 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 assume Big Pens. I, I assumed Big Lighters. Yeah. When I saw the Big thing. Oh yeah, I thought it was a Big. I don't know. Whatever Big. I went Big Pens, and that's you know, what my big, brain. The Big Family. Uh, I just makes all kinds of wonderful products. I just thought of like a truck driving around and like shooting pens at people. <laughs> There's a toilet paper truck. We yeah. know that because one of them blows up. I think it kind of drove me a little crazy, actually, that in the sequence where, like, the Little League sequence, when the soda machine is shooting soda cans 
forcefully the the part of my brain that's like the the uber practical part was like uh soda machines are not designed uh to shoot they have no projectile <laughs> system in them that doesn't work that way it would just fall out <laughs> and i i like, yeah. couldn't get over that <laughs> yeah now i hate to break it to you most uh, trucks can't drive themselves yet <laughs> either <laughs> or electric kind of like- carving knives which are frequently used in diners yeah, I love that there was know. like there was like yeah, no turkey. consistency to uh, the ways that like okay so trucks can operate mechanical things can operate like you see like mirrors move and like things you know except like the um, the hair dryer that strangles a woman like uh-huh. how does how does that function does it like use its own air blowing as like a projectile to like rocket itself around the woman's neck like. It, <laughs> The amount of things that, like, coincidentally just didn't function, like, if if any mechanism can get used, why was that kid's bike not attacking him? Hmm. Yeah, and why, I mean, Yeardley Smith's uh, uh, car, you know, the the, the young right. married couple's car, you know, it was fine. <laughs> That's also you know, a running I, gag in the, in the Maximum King script, specifically Yeardley Smith's car, yeah. You know... Uh, just to end this on a positive note, I love the way the movie looks. It captures a very specific time and place in the eighties that I, I sort of remember from my childhood. I'm a little, I'm a little later than this, but it all looked like that to me. Like that's how I remember the eighties looking. And the truck stop is really convincing too. Like when we went, when we went on that uh, trip to um, up to Bangor and uh, did like the Stephen King tour, the the first place they took us, they were like, "Well, we're going to go to lunch first. And we're going to the truck stop from Maximum Overdrive. And everyone was like, holy shit, fucking fuck yeah. And we show up and it was like, this isn't the this isn't the truck stop from Maximum Overdrive. And in fact, wasn't that a set? And wasn't that in North Carolina? And we started like asking questions to the, the studio reps. And they were like furiously on their phones, like checking their math. <laughs> and and eventually they're like, okay, this is this is the truck stop that inspired the short story that Maximum Overdrive was based on. Yep. And to this production's credit, that truck stop looks very similar to the fucking truck stop I went to with, you know, bland walls with bland Americana bullshit on them, you know, like mm-hmm. bullhorns or whatever the fuck and a lasso, you know, like, like that sort of like, you know, corny Americana bullshit. It didn't look like a truck stop that had been built for the movie. No, no, it looked like convincing. It, I was actually kind of surprised because naturally I sort of assume like in a lot of horror movies that are sort of like location based, I just assume that they find a place that they can make a movie. Like we talked, you know, session nine, they just like, they found the location and then wrote a movie around it. You know, and right. I just sort of assume that like someone like, Oh, we have a truck stop that's going to get torn down. We've got you know, <laughs> yeah. two weeks to make a movie. We can do whatever we want to it. I just assumed that was the case. And when I had learned that they had built it from the ground up, I was actually surprised because it, it looks it looks real. Like it looks like yeah. a, a long running worn down. You know, it's got that up. bar in it. The bar looks functional to me. You yeah. Know? A bar is not an easy thing to uh, oh. create on screen. Yeah. One of my other notes was that Omen, um, they have um, when the machine gun starts shooting everything. I want to know, was it actually someone's job to like, did they clear the set and someone came in with an actual machine gun and shot everything up to like get all the bullet holes on the wall? Was that like a, or was there like one set designer going in there, like drilling holes and painting the bullet holes? Like and probably surely, squibs and fucking up squibs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm saying what, but when they, the, once they are shooting everything and there's all the squibs, but there's the whole set where there's the bolt, the walls are riddled with bullet holes 
And I want to know if if we're talking about a coke-fueled movie production, was it someone's job to just go in with a machine gun after hours and just blow the hell out of the place? Hmm. It wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened. I heard, actually, um, uh, that David Lynch came on set and shot <laughs> the place up with a machine gun. Another KingCast exclusive. Let's, <laughs> that's two articles now that uh, you folks can get out of this episode. Well, this is this has paid massive dividends, Daniel. You brought us a lot to think about, and uh, two very uh, juicy scoops. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> in the parlance of our our profession, uh, do you have anything anything you want to tease that you're working on that's coming up? Uh, I mean, I'm in the in- industry that's shut down. I have no events, no art shows, no conventions, no gig posters, no upcoming movie releases. People can look forward to your weekly uh, contributions of uh, of giving us our thumbnails for for each episode. <laughs> yes, that is true. Here's here's what I've got coming of my life. Maybe at some point, my daughter will go back to daycare, and I can function being an adult again. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll see. Yeah, and maybe I mean, you get that grilled cheese truck going. Though. We're all in yeah. a holding pattern right now, so I don't know what life is at this point. I'll probably just go back to drawing weird, sad artwork for assholes. And uh, continue yeah. living in my basement and avoiding the outside world. Sounds great. Well, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for um, having me. You know, uh, I don't have anything else to add. Do you, Eric? Nope, no, no. I think we uh, we covered as much ground as we possibly could. I have, <laughs> I have one more. I have one more thing to add. All, All right, right Columbus. The last thing I will talk about. In, uh, in We briefly touched on it, but in 1997, there was a Canadian television movie version of Trucks called Trucks. It's not a good movie, but there is a sequence, which I suggest watching, in which a man is killed by a remote control car. And it's just a cute little toy car that like knocks him over and then runs into his head a whole bunch of times until he's dead. It goes on for like three minutes and it's hilarious. If the you could rip mo- that sequence and upload it, uh, we will. It is it online. Out. It's it's online. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's oh, definitely okay. online. You can watch it right now. Please tweet that. Um, it's yes. the only part of the movie worth watching because it's so stupid. And it also, like I said, that movie was incredibly low budget, and this is obviously a low budget thing (laughs) all right folks we'll look forward to that daniel thank you for joining us today and i think that's all we got and that was our maximum overdrive episode many thanks to daniel danger for finally picking the title that i really 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 wanted to talk about (laughs) that a lot of people wanted us to talk about that's maybe our most requested title so far do you think yeah, yeah. Like oddly enough, like starting this, I thought everybody was going to be demanding it and the stand and you know, right, right. shining. And but yeah, it is. It's it's weirdly these these like weirder, funner uh, things that people really want. I think it's weird that no one's no one's picked the stand or it yet. And the only thing I can think of, you know, we were saying to this to one of our guests the other day. Uh, people don't want the responsibility of it because they're so goddamn big. That's right. You know, it's a it's a commitment. If you're gonna you're going to do that show. You need to be well read on that material. And you're looking at like a thousand page commitment. So it might be a minute before we get around to one of those bad boys. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we had somebody, uh, we won't say necessarily who uh, on the hook uh, for it, but uh, they said that they didn't want no, to do I think it without we spoiled reading. that already. Oh, did we? I think we spoiled that. Didn't we? I thought we did like on the air. 
Yeah, we'll say it was initially we were going to have Kumail and Emily Gordon both uh, coming on to talk about it. And uh, that's still a potential thing that that might happen. Um, But uh, the word came back. They really wanted to reread it before uh, starting. And and they were both, you know, very busy people. (laughs) And that is a hell of a commitment. Maybe we just send them the Stephen Weber audiobook. (laughs) Well, Emily's busy writing a script. You know, and Kamel is uh, busy getting ripped as fuck still, I imagine. <laughs> yep, making protein pancakes. Yes. Uh, so next week we have what might be a niche title, uh, but people who know it love it, and people who don't know it uh, should absolutely read it. We are delving into the short story Crouch End. Yes. This is one of my, uh, in fact, this is probably my most anticipated title uh, heading into this show because Crouch End is my favorite uh, Stephen King short story. It gives us an excuse to talk about King and Lovecraft, which are two topics. You know, those two versus one another is a, a, a conversation I always enjoy having. And as an added bonus, the Crouch End adaptation is balls out terrible. Um, <laughs> so it gives us a, a, an excuse to talk about a story we love followed by uh, beating up on the um, the adaptation that followed much like a, uh, a pinata or uh, an old sack filled with uh, rotten vegetables or something. Yes. Yeah. If he, like I didn't even remember that there was an adaptation of this when this was picked. I was like, oh, this is weird. We're going to do a show with uh, that hasn't been adapted. And, and you were like, no, 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 sir. It was part of that Nightmares and Dreamscapes TNT adaptation. Yeah. Yes, it most certainly was. Um, if you are not familiar with this uh, particular adaptation, I would tell you, I cannot in good conscience recommend that you go and watch it. If you were going to go about that by legal means, you would need to pay, I believe, like 3 or $4 to rent it from Amazon Prime. And um, I, I would instead urge people to put that money towards uh, buying the Nightmares and Dreamscapes audiobook to hear Tim Curry read Crouch End. And he kills that reading. It's one of the best audiobook narrations you'll ever hear. But, you know, it's y'all's life. It's your dollar. You know, you do whatever you want with it. I would absolutely recommend uh, the Tim Curry version or just, you know, if you have a copy of Nightmares and Dreamscapes laying around, it's a really yes. quick read. I, I think it took me about half an hour and I'm the world's slowest reader. <laughs> it's explicitly King doing Lovecraft, which is so good. He is so fucking good at that. So, um, yes, definitely seek out the short story in whatever format you can find it. The adaptation, maybe not so much. And then on... Uh, Friday, that's this coming Friday, uh, we have a new early access episode coming to the Patreon page, the KingCast Patreon. That's uh, right. Yeah, we have our episode on the Langoliers coming to yes. Patreon this Friday. Yes. Uh, both of these episodes have very good guests. Both of I, Actually, these, these ones have a lot in common because um, I think that in general, we are both fans of... The source material, but not the resulting adaptation. Is that a For fair sure. assessment? Yes, that is. That's very fair. Go visit the KingCast Patreon at patreon.com backslash uh, the KingCast uh, to get signed up in order to get that on Friday. And otherwise, we will catch you next Wednesday with Crouch End. All right. See you then. See you then.